What is the reality of the Holy Scriptures? Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony Alegria. And today we have a very special guest with us, um, Brother Dan Sprouse. And Brother Dan, if you would go ahead and introduce yourself to everyone. Dan Sprouse. <laughs> <laughs> Dan doesn't realize it, but uh, both myself Amanda, Anthony doesn't even know what he's afraid of. You see, Amanda and myself, we know that we're getting fired at the end of this. Dan has come to to give us the adjudication that we have all been waiting for. We we will all be terminated and, and excommunicated from this. So it's just a matter of time when it's all over with. Um, I will recognize it is it is due. <laughs> and, and to give context to all that, um, Dr. Uh, Dan Sproth, he's he has a doctorate in New Testament theology. He was a former professor at Trebek and Nazarene University, and he was... Our, one of our professors, um, I think Anthony came in a little too late to, to have the joy of Dr. Spross and uh, his uh, class into uh, exegetical work. But uh, so, yes, no, the, the terror continues even six years yes, after graduating. Yes, yes. Um, I think and I graduated. I have no authority to fire him. <laughs> I'm very relaxed about that. Okay. He says that, but if Dan tells us we're fired, I, I would just be like, yeah, <laughs> it's well-deserved, overdue. <laughs> may, may God have mercy on my soul <laughs> and move along. Anyway, so we are going to be talking about Article 4 in the, the Church of the Nazarene, and it is regarding the Holy Scriptures. Now, just as a disclaimer, in this video, we realize we're not going to be able to discuss every avenue of this topic that people may be concerned with. We're not going to be able to answer all the questions, but we do want to give you some pointers. We want to give you some intellectual tools so that you'll be able to understand exactly what role the Holy Scriptures play, how the Nazarene of Faith article came into, or the Na Church of the Nazarene article of faith, how that came into its current state, some of the hist historicity around that, but ultimately, we want you to be able to articulate your faith and who you are and how you believe that and how that relates to the Holy Scripture a little bit better. So let's get right into this. Uh, Pastor Amanda, would you read for us Article 4 as it currently is? Yes. So it says, We believe in the plenary inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, by which we understand the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, given by divine inspiration, inerrantly revealing the will of God concerning us and all things necessary to our salvation, so that whatever is not contained therein is not to be enjoined as an article of faith. All right, so before we even get into this article, I can't help but there is something that is missing from this. And it's a topic that a lot of people think of immediately when they hear pastors talking about scripture and the history of it. I know within the church, there's a large debate about what translation should even be used. And one might notice when seeing this, this is not an article of faith coming to tell you, this is what translation you must use, lest the, the hellfire and brimstone come for you. Um, Brother Dan, I know you have an interesting story about overcoming the issues that people have when they're, they're kind of getting a little hostile trying to figure out what translation is best and just the general questions people have regarding translations and even the original language. Well, the story I think that you were referring to um, occurred back in the early days of my ministry. I had originally spent 10 years pastoring in California, followed by four years of ministry in and around the Kansas City area. And when I agreed to pastor a church in Louisville, Kentucky, I had a friend who warned me that when you get to Kentucky, if you do not preach from the King James Bible, they will have your head on the platter and they will run you into the river and you'll be gone. 
So I said, well, thank you for the forewarning. I got to Louisville, Kentucky, my first Sunday morning there. I took my text, I believe it was from Isaiah 43. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a brand new thing. It rises up right in front of you. Will you not see it? I read my text and invited the congregation to stand with me as I was proclaiming the word. And I announced to them, I will be preaching, I will be reading my text from the New American Standard Bible this morning. And if you'd like to know why you want to be in church a week from tonight, the following Sunday night, and I will explain to you why I preach and teach from the New American Standard Bible. And I proceeded to read my entire text. I think I read 12 or 15 verses from Isaiah, preached, and um, went on. We had dinner on the grounds. That Sunday night, I preached out of 1 John. Again, I took my text from the New American Standard Bible, and I said to my congregation, if you want to know why, I preach and teach out of the New American Standard Bible. You want to be here next Sunday night. Did the same thing the following Sunday morning, and then that Sunday night, I got to church early, and I arrayed all the different English translations of Scripture I had on the front pew. It's pretty safe to put things on a front pew. I was in a large <laughs> church. Nobody ever sat there. So you could put whatever you wanted in the seat. But I also had on the front pew my Greek New Testament and my Hebrew Bible. And I said, before I begin to, we'd gone through all our preliminaries, before I explain to you why I preach and teach from the New American Standard Bible, I said, let me share with you some scripture for us to begin our service this evening. And um, I think I started with something like um, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Achan, holding a big, thick Bible in my hand. My Kentucky congregation had no idea what I was doing. And I looked around, no one acted like they comprehended the word I had said. And I thought, I thought some of you would say amen. And I said, perhaps I've offended a few of you Maybe some of you are more conservative and were offended because I, of the way I vocalized the Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters for the name of God that a good devout Jew would never vocalize. So I said, let me read it again and perhaps I can do better for those of you who are more conservative. And I said, Shama Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. Nobody seemed any more blessed the second time. In fact, I had a few folks whispering way back, about 15 rows back, and I heard them all the way to the front. And I heard one person lean over and say to another, I think we have a charismatic <laughs> pastor. He's speaking in tongues. But I put my Hebrew Bible down and I thought, well, pardon me, maybe you folks are more familiar with the Greek New Testament. So I picked up a new text. I didn't actually tell them it was Greek. I said, well, maybe you would prefer a New Testament text. And I picked up, and I think I picked up the Gospel of John, you know, Aparche, in the beginning, you know, was the Word, and the Word was God. Except I read it in Greek. Nobody, by this time, people were getting restless, and I set it down. And I said, well, I thought you folks here were conservative, and you'd want to hear the text as close as we can get it to the original. 
and the originals, and then I held up the Hebrew Bible, and I said, the original Old Testament was written mainly in Hebrew and Aramaic. And I said, that's what I was reading, and then I handed it to the folks. and said, pass it around. Many folks had never seen a Hebrew Bible. If you have never seen written Hebrew and you've never handled Tanakh, Torah, Navi'im, Ketavim, it is an impressive and intimidating reality. And so I passed that around and I explained to them and I said, and please don't do this. And I opened it at the very, what we would call the front and said, don't lean over to the person next to you and read this and say, oh, I can read this in the beginning. <laughs> You know, God created the heavens and the earth. I said, if you want that, you have to go all the way back here because they read from here and they read this. Because the Hebrew scriptures, written in Hebrew, different language. So I circulated that. And then I circulated my Greek Testament and explained to them this was the earliest versions we had of scripture. Then I said to them, what you need to understand, if you want to understand scripture, since we are English-speaking people, and there are some who have visited Kentucky and wonder about that, but <laughs> they do speak a version of English. Um, I said, I will find it's probably more profitable if we share English. And then I held up a Bible and I said, I grew up with this and I held up a King James Bible. And I said, you need to know I was, I was raised on this Bible. This is one my father gave me. It was an impressive black leather Dixon thumb indexed, big pulpit Bible. And I told them, I said, I Bible studied in the King James Version. I can speak King Jamesese. But I said, the problem is, over time, language changes. In this Bible, in 1609 to 1611, when it was being translated, was the most modern, up-to-date, accurate English version of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, Hebrew, Aramaic, and then the New Testament, the Greek. But I said, times have changed, language has changed, and furthermore, since that Bible was written, we have found literally thousands of additional manuscripts, all of which have been incorporated into newer versions. And then I talked briefly about the different types of translation, word for word, that is, word literal Bibles, which the King James, for the most part, was, dynamic equivalent, which were coming into popular use back in the 70s, where you take a phrase and you try to get a phrase for phrase equivalency, and then free paraphrase in which you try to make the language as contemporary and as easy to understand as possible. Things like the Living Bible or um, Good News for Modern Man are much more paraphrastic. And I said, so you have to make a decision. I said, now, I have suggested to you, and then I talked about the Revised Standard Bible that came along as language modernized an attempt to make it more contemporary, and then went to the point of the New American Standard, which is probably the closest, most accurate to the originals you can find. But even at that, it does have shortcomings, and it's sometimes stiff, hard to use, and word literal translations can outlive their usefulness. The best preachers I've ever heard always use some kind of combination of a very accurate translation and they elaborate it and put it into language that everybody can understand. And I said, that's what my goal will be as a pastor. When that Sunday night was over, no one in my church complained about me preaching from the New American Standard. 
Since then, we've got a new revised standard. We've got the ESV. We have the CEV. We are blessed in this country to have a number of versions that make the word more accessible, more understandable, more readable. And the, the worst Bible in the world may be the best translation, but if it sits unread and unused, it does nobody any good. And amen to that. Yeah. Pastor Amanda, do you think in our modern day and age, people would have the attention span to wait an entire week for that? I love how he had like this <laughs> yeah. cliffhanger, like the buildup of that is intense. I think, yeah, I think, um in 2019, it would have to be Sunday morning, and then right now it's Sunday night, or even... I'm amazed that you had dinner on the grounds afterwards and nobody, like, tackled you then, um, trying to demand a sneak preview into the next week's um, explanation. So. Well, somewhat ironically, I had more people show up that next Sunday night yeah. than were there that first Sunday morning, even for dinner on the grounds. Wow. wow. I had people I hadn't even seen in any of those three services show up. I guess word got out that, oh, boy... We're going to see him. I didn't smell any dead cats or rotten tomatoes. <laughs> if you've read Mark Twain, you'll understand why I use that illustration. Well, hopefully um, we can get away from the dead cats and rotten tomatoes. Um, and hopefully that will not be what's going on in this program. Um, but let's get back to this topic of the article of faith. Because okay. this really is a, it's a big deal. And a lot of people, when they come to Scripture, they do have those lingering questions. And as you pointed out earlier... Scripture is something which is dynamic, and there's something beautiful about using the language dynamic versus considering it just merely to be static. And let's start with our opening thoughts a little bit on inerrancy. So, Brother Dan, I know you had some opening thoughts onto our particular language found within the Article of Faith on inerrancy, and we'll, we'll go there first before discussing some other well, I think before you talk about inerrancy, you, you need to look, first of all, at that opening phrase, we believe in the plenary mm. inspiration. Now, that particular phrase was not added to the Article of Faith Church of the Nazarene until the late 1920s, 1928 to be precise. And the, the word plenary simply means all, whole, fully, complete. Uh, I've gone to conferences where you have subgroups that study or hear papers on different topics, but then you all gather in one auditorium for the plenary address in which you address the whole conference. Mm. So in a sense, plenary inspiration is an affirmation we believe in the full and complete inspiration of Scripture. It is fully inspired. It's not like we've got much of it, part of it, some of it inspired. The whole bears the imprint of the work of the Holy Spirit in the, the work of inspiration. What's interesting to me is, and I have in my hands the 1908 manual, Church of the Nazarene, the year it was officially organized as a national denomination, that phrase didn't even appear. That one on Holy Scriptures, which was the fourth article, simply said, by the Holy Scriptures, we understand the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments given by divine inspiration. Hmm. They felt in 1908 the fact that it's divinely inspired was sufficient. By the 1920s, there were things going on socially and culturally in this country where people wondered if that was a strong enough statement to stake out what Nazarenes believed. So there was the addition of, we believe it's fully inspired. And they wanted to add that at the beginning. And then it goes on to say, revealing the will of God concerning us in all things necessary to our salvation. 
It doesn't say anything. In fact, the word inerrant does not appear in the 1903, the 1905, the 1908 manuals of the Church of the Nazarene. The word inerrant finally makes it in in 1928 as an adverb, not a noun. And it is added ahead of the phrase revealing the will of God. Um, and the whole point being by making it an adverb, inerrantly revealing meaning it reveals fully without error everything necessary for our salvation. And I think in that whole phrase and in that language, um, I think the wisdom of that statement, Nazarene article on scripture is clearly soteriological. And that is its inspiration was designed for a primary purpose to reveal the will of God in all things that are needed for human beings to be redeemed through the work of God in Jesus Christ to make salvation a possible reality for the people who read it and hear it and receive it and believe it. Pastor Amanda, I know Dan has mentioned this concept of inerrant. I know one of the questions that people often get, if you're in the Church of the Nazarene, people may come up to you and say, well, what's different between a, a Nazarene and a insert other denomination or non-denomination here? There's something interesting about inerrant, it not being a noun in and of itself. Instead, it is an adverb. And this idea... Inerrantly. Is inerrantly, yes, yes, yes. Inerrant is a yes, noun. Yes, right, right. <laughs> well, people might say, well, is Scripture inerrant? This, or is it inerrantly revealed? This idea of it actually being something a little bit more complicated, but yet at the same time it is a bit more direct in clarifying our theology. Amanda, how do... People answer that question when people come to them. How do Nazarenes treat Scripture a little bit differently? Can yeah, you? Um, and so so Nazarenes, um, Wesleyans, and um, Methodists uh, kind of theologically are very similar. Um, but what maybe separates us from, say, the Baptist or uh, Pentecostal or um, even Catholicism, it w would be this word, or there's lots of difference, but as it pertains to our, our, our conversation today and inherently revealing, I think it, it, it gives us as Dr. Schross was talking, this dynamic nature of scripture. Um, and this idea that um, although we do have kind of a, a line in the sand that says this is where we cut off that we only have 66 books in the Bible, at the same time that doesn't mean that the scripture is dead. Um, it continues to fulfill its purpose of revealing versus other denominations um, may just say that it is simply inerrant. And this takes moves us to, I think, a very stagnant view of scripture that it's Perfection comes in it being grammatically and historically and all these other um, inerrant versus saying actually the perfection of scripture comes in its function. And I think this is where I, I, I really like what Dr. Trust earlier about like its purpose. A and scripture, I think, especially if we take a very fundamentalist view of scripture, um, but even uh, Wesleyans can take, uh, but we can take it so far where we make scripture an idol. We make it something exactly. to be manipulated, something that we can use to know God and to use God, to manipulate God, and then to manipulate others. Versus if, and that happens, I think, very easily if we say it's just inerrant. It's just a thing that I can, like, whack people um, with to get them to do what I want them to do, or even whack God with so, to get God to do what I want to do. But if it is alive, if it is breathing, if I have to take a role of investigating, of interpreting, of studying, um, and really become 
subservient to God's will and not my will, then then it is, it, it just, I think it becomes more powerful, but it is inherently revealing. But then I have to participate in that revelation. I can't just sit back and be like, oh, I read that one verse out of context. Now I got what I want out of it. But instead, now I have to read not just the one verse, but it's literary context, it's historical context, language context. And I mean, and that sounds like a lot. And that sounds like something only pastors do. But really, um, if we're truly participating in the life of the church, that's something all of us should do, regardless mm -hmm. of our educational background or time or position in the church. Um, but I think it starts, I know I'm kind of getting away from the question, but to maybe to uh, reel me back in, um, it starts with this understanding, I think, of the plenary inspiration and the in inherently revealing. Because if that's kind of our foundation, um, then we can move into scripture and I think find something quite dynamic and beautiful about it. And also a comment I had made earlier in our study when we started with the triune God, really we don't even start with scripture as our foundation. We start with the nature of God as our foundation as, as Christians. Yes. Um, and because if we start with the nature of God, who God is and how God reveals God's self to the world, we see that in scripture. We also see that in the traditions of the church. We see that through Christian um, experiences and Christian reason. And I, I kind of add Christian to those words because sometimes they get very humanistic. But we can see how God is acting, both how God acted thousands of years ago with Moses, uh, thousands of years ago or 2,000 years ago with Paul and, you know, a uh, hundred years ago with the beginning of the Church of the Nazarene in 1908 and how God is working now. Well, one and, thing and, I want to... Let me okay. be piggyback on that. I think theologically, if you understand, there's a reason why the first three articles don't start. Scripture is not Article 1. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that the first three articles deal with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I, I, if you really want to simplify it, one ought to ask the question, do I begin with a belief in a Bible or do I be, begin with a belief in a God that has revealed God's self to us yeah. as Father, Son, and Spirit in that beautiful dynamic relationship that you were talking about in previous podcasts, Father, Son, and Spirit, that mm -hmm. whole Trinitarian dynamic relationality and it's out of that that the Spirit has worked and then the Bible becomes an instrument of further revelation and in the process discloses who this God really is. I think it's, it's nice that you use the language there that it's an instrument, it's a tool. It does have its purpose. But I feel like there are a lot of people who they come and they elevate Scripture beyond its purpose and they take it from being a mere tool to it becoming an idol itself because they're afraid that they are somehow disqualifying scripture from having a purpose at all if they are to make the statement that this this phrase inerrant that that that's not a noun if people say it's inherently revealing something they feel like somehow they have damaged the quality of scripture and i feel like and dan may i don't know if you agree or disagree with this but i feel like one of the reasons why that mentality is so appealing to people is they want to say that that scripture is completely true and they feel like if you don't say that it is in, inerrant then you might be saying that somehow it's not true and people they get stuck in this sort of false binary choice between is it static or is it dynamic even though they may not even be thinking those words they may not be able to put that together in their mind per se but they're they're afraid to unlock its true power and they end up ultimately miss not just miss 
applying scripture's role in their life, but they also, I feel like they're, they're missing out something. They're missing out the true nature of God's revelation when they limit scripture to this thing. Well, it's, it's a book that was opened and closed at a certain time. And if God wanted to reel something, you know, it's in there and you kind of have to have a little bit of gross motor skills when you slap it. Um, you don't want to have a lot of fine motor skill thinking on this because there's this fear that you might damage the quality of scripture what do you think about that? Dan? Well, I think in, I think the irony in that whole process is to demand an inerrant scripture is to force upon it a rationality that it never forces upon itself. Mm. And to me, again, it's the misuse. Um, the Bible is not the be-all or the end-all. And the Bible's purpose is not to exalt itself. I think I can feel the, the pitchforks coming at that <laughs> it statement. It is to be exalting the God who from the beginning spoke all creation into existence. The God who spoke, and I, I love the way Bart often does it when he talks about the word was revealed and then spoken before it was ever written. And he believed in the fourfold word of God. But the first and ultimate word of God, as John chapter 1 makes crystal clear, is Jesus Christ. Yeah. This is the word that became enfleshed. That enfleshed word spoke words that were eventually written and have been remembered and have been passed along. And the beauty of that word is, as that word is heard, and spoken and remembered, the God who once spoke can now again through the Spirit dynamically speak, reveal, and make known God's self again. And that continues dynamically. We've already been discussing the sentiment that Scripture is something more than just a, a limited use tool that is opened and, and closed and there's no need to to really understand or have critical thinking when you approach it. that That's really not at all its purpose. We are to have critical thinking. We are to be people who renew our minds. We're transformed as we come to Scripture. But there is a question that lingers within a lot of people's minds. They want to say, well, how did the, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, how did they actually get there? If we, we understand this logic that God speaking, and again, when we look back all the way and see God speaking creation into existence. He brings a purpose and meaning. He brings things out of this, this absence of meaning and brings a, a new light with it. His word, it is a tool for giving order to the universe. As that starts to, to unfold, as we, we think in terms of human language, in terms of human writing, there has to be a line drawn on what is and what is not accepted as canon. And I know within the early church, this was a big problem. Uh, this was a really big problem in the early church. So, Dan, I wanted us to talk a little bit about the criteria that actually was used within the, the New Testament for establishing what would be accepted and what would not be accepted as canon. Well, I think you have to almost start with an Old Testament precedent. In the, in the compilation of Tanakh, most scholars are pretty comfortable that Torah, first five books, were pretty much in the form we now have them by the time Israel returns from exile. The priests are busy putting this together and they begin writing it. It had been passed along orally for centuries, but they didn't want to end up in exile again. 
And part of the product is let's give people a book that continues to help them during a period of critique before they went into exile, during exile, after exile, you then had the, the Navi'im, the prophets, who were also critiquing folks who were abandoning the faithful practice of covenant faithfulness spelled out in Torah. So you've got those books beginning to be compiled and pulled together and remembered. And by the second century, those are complemented with uh, the writings, the Navi, or the Ketuvim, uh, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, some of these kinds of writings and books. Ironically, the rise of Christianity probably brought about the close of the Hebrew canon. And with the proliferation of Christian writings in the first century, um, the decisions were being made by the rabbis in order to keep Judaism alive once their temple was destroyed and they had been scattered from the land. We will survive as people of the book. And so they began, and the way in rabbinic literature, and I found this fascinating when I learned this from my Jewish rabbi professor, they determined what was deemed canonical by whether or not it defiled your hands if you handled it. Mm. Now, this is Eastern logic, it's not Western, but if, if you handled Torah, you had to have clean hands to touch it, but with the very act of touching the scrolls, your hands were considered violated or defiled because you had handled that which is sacred. Mm. And so it was treated that way. And eventually, the way they spoke about even some of the last books to come in, in the Ketuvim, did they defile the hands when you read it in synagogue? And eventually, they closed their canon, probably sometime toward the end of the first, no later than the second century. With the Christian canon, you have an explosion of things. They adopted almost wholesale the Hebrew Bible, but for many Christians, Hebrew was not the language they were speaking they were speaking Koine Greek, many of them were as, as familiar or more with Septuagint. And even the Jews in Jesus' day um, could, would could handle... Could you explain to people a little bit what the Septuagint is for people who may not be familiar with that? Sure. Septuagint is basically a, a Greek word meaning the 70, and it's abbreviated in the margins of your critical study Bibles as LXX, the 70, in Roman numerals. Um, it was a Greek translation Legend has it that when the Jews under the Ptolemies in Egypt wanted their books included in the world's great library um, in Alexandria, they wanted their Hebrew Bible included in that great library. Unfortunately, very few people were reading Hebrew. And even the Jews, most Jews were speaking Aramaic, not, Ar not Hebrew anymore they determined we need to translate our sacred scriptures into Greek. And that process began in the third century, approximately, and there's clear evidence that by the second century, the entire, what we would call Tanakh, was available in Greek. And um, it was initially placed, they had a copy there, but it began to spread. So it was for the Greek-speaking world, and that was the language of trade all through the Roman Empire well into the second century. Now this is 
before Christ. This is before yeah, Christ. Yeah, so this, when we're talking... Two, 200 yeah, years before When we're talking 3rd and 2nd century, this is... That's B.C. Not, yeah, that's B.C., not A.D. Or B.C.E. if you want to be well, more contemporary. Well, I, I am still one who ascribes heavily to B.C. and A.D. Because <laughs> you kind of have to be dishonest about history to, to take away the, the Anno Domini mentality. Well, exactly. Um, now, when, when we move on into the Christian world... Um, the Christian writings began, probably some of the earliest writings would have been around 50, which is certainly after the, the life, death, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Many scholars, I think most scholars would say Paul's writings, either the, to the church in Galatia or Thessalonica, were probably two of the earliest around the late 40s, early 50s, and his epistles continued up into the early 60s. And then by the end of the first century, I think the majority of our New Testament books had been circulating as individual books. Mm -hmm. But then the question becomes, those were not the only writings, those right. are not the only Christian writings. You get, um, you get a, a variety of, of Didache, the teachings, yeah. you have um, other materials, and then you have early Christian martyrs yeah, one, in many of their books right. and many of the accounts and the narratives of what become known as the early church fathers, even before there's really an established early church. Yeah, we, we were discussing recently the Diary of, of Perpetua, um, the, the passion of, of Perpetua where they are, are in martyrdom and how that was an important evangelical tool for the church to circulate that. And again, that's just one of many. There was a lot of martyrdom accounts. And although we do see the, the scriptures, which we now consider scriptures being written much before that, their circulation isn't in the form that we would think of biblical circulation today. It's not like everybody has a Bible they would go and pick up. That had up. 66 books. Yeah, it, it wouldn't have looked like no. that. And Dan, how did people make that transition from saying, well, while this text from, we'll say, the, the second century, it's very important, it's very powerful, it gives an account of people's faith, it gives us something to, to have us a... a well, it's an evangelical tool. It shows us this is someone's testimony as they're living out their response to Jesus Christ's testimony. You know, that's powerful. But how is that different enough from, say, the writings that have apostolic connection, those which are, are more what we associate with the New Testament today? How did they draw those lines? Well, eventually, you, and I think you have, a, you have a good list of the criteria that were followed. Um, did it have apostolic authority? Did this person have connection? The earliest apostles in the first century had to have been uh, the original 12 eyewitnesses to Jesus during his lifetime. And you read in Acts of one who, you know, with the death of Judas, who are we going to use to replace him? Right. They needed someone else who was also an eyewitness who had seen and heard many of these things to come along. So apostolic authority was important. Um, interesting at times the stretches that had to be made to include some really good books and I'm glad yeah. they used them but books had to sometime, somehow be connected to those in that very first century when the faith is becoming um, recorded and written. Right. I want to reiterate that because a lot of times people they have confusion about what defines an apostle what makes that different from just a disciple and you know people hear language like that of bishop, and they start thinking, well, that has nothing to do with the Church of the Nazarene. You know, that's their theology. But in the early church, they did have defined 
positions and they had to find descriptors of different groups of people and apostolic connection is important. And I do want to reiterate what exactly they are meaning when they say that because a lot of times people use this language interchangeably with some other terms. But Dan, just one more time, can you reiterate for the audience what exactly that meant? Well, it meant a direct connection to those who had an encounter with Messiah Jesus immediately and directly. Paul would be the one person that would some would say, wait a minute, we have no proof that he ever actually heard Jesus preach or teach. Mm -hmm. But by his own testimony, if we take the book of Acts seriously, and I certainly do, he encountered the resurrected Messiah Jesus. And he said, he appeared to me last of all as one untimely born in 1 Corinthians 15, and he made himself known to me. So these were people who had laid eyes upon Jesus. And then eventually you get apostolic connection for the whole process of ordination. When the apostles would lay hands upon someone to set them apart for ministry, and over time you get the the notion of an apostolic succession. Mm-hmm. And there are churches today, the Anglican Church believes that their ordained priests are a part of the apostolic succession. Roman Catholic priests the same way. Mm-hmm. When one who has been ordained lays hands upon you to ordain you, the literal touch of an apostle going all the, the way, way back, back yeah. to an eyewitness of Jesus, one who was called and sent and authorized to speak on his behalf. Yes, very good. Uh, but just to one final time, it is a firsthand thing. And that's one of the things which separates out, say from a martyrdom account or someone exactly. who else who may be a bishop or something, maybe even pretty close to, to first century living, but if they did not have that firsthand connection, then that would be a way of cutting things, not necessarily off, but just defining the parameters of what would be considered canon. Now that isn't saying that God was not revealing or God was not active in their life by any stretch of the imagination. It's just their way of saying, we have to draw the line somewhere and that's how we're gonna do it. Um, Amanda, I know you often are talking a lot about orthodoxy. Um, I I have some admiration for some services y'all have done where y'all have kind of outlined what it means to excommunicate. (laughs) How important is orthodoxy as being a component to some of the, the canon, and, and Amanda, how, how should we respond to, to some of the stuff that we've talked about? Right, and I think as we've talked about, we've kind of, I think a lot of times people assume that Scripture was kind of first, and that's what gave us our mm-hmm. orthodoxy, and then, like, through history, we continue to go back to Scripture. And so by, by rearranging kind of the timeline of how we think of things, we, we can um, see that orthodoxy was at place, and like you had mentioned um, in our kind of our um preparations for this episode about, you know, we can't just tell Moses, hey, Moses, you can't use the Ten Commandments because they weren't found in Scripture. Like, you know, Scripture comes way after the Ten Commandments were written. And so again, so we have orthodoxy established first through how God revealed God's self to God's people. And as that oral tradition continued, then as that written tradition continued, as translations happened between languages, as historical findings um, were discovered and all this happens, we, we continue to see the, the growth in, uh, of, of Scripture. And so orthodoxy, and also I think it's interesting as we were talking about this, um, kind of the, the main parameters we use to decide if someone is Christian or not, or if a denomination, I should say, if a denomination is Christian or not, is we go back to the Apostles' Creed 
which is not found in scripture. Um, and yet it reveals the parameters of what is orthodoxy. And also the Apostles' Creed does not really contain anything that says the words scripture or Bible, um, which is just fascinating, I, I think. And, and so when we say what is orthodox, we're not really necessarily saying what is biblical, although those two words are not contradictory, obviously. What is in scripture is orthodox and what is orthodox is found in scripture. Um, right. But it is, again, finding the basis of that discovery. And I think the other thing is that helps us keep away from using the Bible improperly. Um, and it also helps us to see, as Dr. Spross and as um, Pastor Dylan mentioned, the dynamic nature of Scripture. And that orthodoxy, um, we there's a lot to discover in what is right thought and in what is not right thought. But there's also room to have conversations. And our scripture is so beautiful at that. You know, we're talking about the um, apostles in the New Testament did not always agree with one another. Paul and Peter fought. Um, you have passages that if you take it just a cursory glance, you have some of Paul's writing that seem to disagree with James. If you look in the Old Testament, we, the reason we have a Pentateuch where you have the Levitical voice, the priestly voice coming out, but also the prophetic voices are coming out in the Deuteronomistic history. If we read them, at times they seem to struggle with one another. They seem to fight with one another. And it's because this is the beautiful nature of who our God is. God says, I've created you with free will. You get to use that free will. You get to use uh, logic and understanding and, and experiences to discover things. And sometimes you may come to different conclusions than the person sitting next to you. But at the same time, you have to stay within orthodoxy. Um, it's it's And so, it, I don't know. I, I think... And also going back to an earlier conversation we had, I think for some people that's distressing. They're like, oh no, there, there's conflict. And you're like, no, but this is beautiful because in this conversation, we can continue to understand who our God is and who our God calls us to be. It's not easy. It's not simple. Um, but it is fantastic. Yeah, in the refining of theological language, it's always necessary to refine it and explain it when there is controversy. Mm -hmm. And I think, for example, the earliest Christian creeds emerged when bishops representing the church all across the empire, the five major bishops came together and they said, we, we have different understandings in our churches because of cultural contextual difference. And then, of course, it was exacerbated when the Western church by the second century is swinging to more a Latin speaking Whereas in the East, it's more Greek speaking. And then your early church fathers, you have both Latin fathers and Greek fathers. And ironically, Greek, which was the Western language when it comes between Old and New Testaments, Greek is more Western, Hebrew more Eastern, but eventually it's Greek that represents the Eastern half of Christendom. In the, and by the time you get to Constantine, which is when you then have these councils trying to hammer out what is right theological thinking? And usually the arguments that carried the day were the ones most consistent with the whole body of Scripture. And so when you have the Christological controversies, fully God, fully man, the God-man, and then as they are shaping and sharpening theological understanding, Scripture, all of Scripture was used to inform how do we express this to say it more clearly and more precisely, because it does matter. And theology does matter. And in that regard, to be biblical does not mean you cease to be theological. Yeah. And to be theological, you don't need to be 
ceased to be biblical. Right. But that dynamic understanding of Scripture, and here again, it can then begin to reveal and help us shape an orthodoxy that is not deadening and killing, but that is providing clear boundaries and parameters. Well, back to some of the ideas that Amanda had brought up. There, there are a lot of things out there that people draw attention to and say, well, that's not explicitly mentioned in Scripture in the form that you were saying it. However, the logic is there. There are a lot of times we find that there is a, a logic, a sentiment, which is portrayed in Scripture, which we find when we look at Scripture with that holistic approach. And when you look at a lot of the, the documents in the early church, even if they're not included in Scripture, and even things which have been later defined, like a good understanding of the Trinity, understanding even the language that we discussed in, in previous articles of faith of the idea of, of Jesus being fully God, fully man, the God-man, things like that, you look at there and it's totally consistent with the logic that is pulled in Scripture. Uh-huh. And, and there is a fair amount of tension, and a lot of times tension is difficult for people to understand, between the logic of Scripture and then what is actually revealed there. There's a logic side of things and there's the revelation. There's the reason and revelation, and they have a lot of tension between there. And it's something which is not always easy for people to wrestle with, but it is where we find a lot of moral certainty. Even though a lot of times tension doesn't sound like moral certainty, there is so much moral certainty that is there. Well, we've got to wrap things up. We're so glad that Dan has joined us. Um, I think we'll find out when all is said and done, if we're fired or not. <laughs> Anthony hasn't said a word in in the midst of all of this. He's kind of been like, I'll just run the computer today. I am sort of just running the computer today. <laughs> you guys are handling everything really well. Although I will say that... I do have a pretty big question, which could get us a ton of pitchforks if you guys would like it. We've talked about it recently in my Reformation class, and so I think uh, it'd definitely be an interesting question, and y'all Go ahead kind and of touched on it anyways. Throw it to, to Dan. All right, well, I guess this is to, to you, Dan. Okay. Um, so What's your question? We've already talked a little bit about uh, the implications, the theological implications and the important ones concerning the order of the articles of faith. And so, for instance, we were bringing up articles of faith are start with the Trinity, an elaboration uh-huh. of the Trinity. And so, necessarily, if we're applying the same logic, there is importance to the place that we have that we have Scripture in. And so, my question is: Is the placement of Scripture currently? A really good placement, or are there is there something else that we could reorder the articles with? I think, first of all, it's it's the last phrase in Article Four that I think may raise some questions because it says, "And whatsoever is not found therein shall not be enjoined as an article of faith," which suggests no article of faith that is not clearly emergent from and consistent with what we find in the whole of Scripture should be held up as, you must believe this as an article of faith. I like it where it sits behind an article about beginning with God the Father, beginning with the, the secondly, the revelation of Father and Son, and then finally the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that is the dynamic agent. And if you go back carefully to Article 3, it's the genius of what makes Article 4 a dynamic article, revealing all things necessary for our salvation. 
and I mean the affirmation. I could go from Romans 10 and I could affirm that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Hmm. Now, if you, if you need an article on salvation in its simplest, barest form, there it is. And all I've done is quoted Romans chapter 10, 9. Um, now, I think the understanding of salvation and uh, the full-orbed work of Christ and everything else that comes beyond that should logically flow beyond that. You have to start somewhere, and I think you ought to start at the beginning. And so I'm very comfortable with the Trinitarian Godhead being examined first. One last point I will make, and I do want to be careful. While the Church of the Nazarene statement on Scripture is dynamic, if you go back and read carefully, Calvin, Luther, as well as someone like John Wesley believed in a dynamic understanding of Scripture. Regrettably, some of their children and grandchildren theologically have tended to think more rationalistically and more statically than some of the forebears did. Um, Timothy George wrote a wonderful little book I have, and Timothy George, Harvard-trained, PhD, um, Southern Baptist, and um, it, it, his little book was called Reading Scripture with the Reformers. Mm. And he gives you some wonderful excerpts and quotations from some of the earliest reformers. What made them so energized about wanting Scripture to be available in the language of the people was that wonderful awareness that it becomes a, a, a vivifying, life-giving source that comes from God to his people. Um, they were not bibliolaters. And in the proper sense of the word, neither were they fundamentalists, and they never wasted time arguing about in the autographs because they didn't have any, and neither do we. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Um, any final thoughts, Amanda? No, I, I think he covered that. But yes, I, I, I hope we um, uh, excitedly anticipate the pitchforks and torches. Yes, I'm really glad <laughs> that I wasn't the one who had to write the value of Articles of Faith. Um, I think it's always dangerous when you start rating sins against one another and rating scriptures <laughs> against one another. I, I don't think that even the assumptions of, of such a premise are always good. And I'm glad that that one wasn't thrown at me. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Sprouls, for being here You're with us. Yes. And we hope to have you, you come back. Um, with that being said, God love you and have a blessed day. Send us your thoughts, questions, and comments. Mm -hmm.